Hello and welcome to Zero Net 50. I'm Jennifer Deloney and with me is Joel Stromberg. How's it going, Joel? Hi, Jennifer. Well, it's, it's warm in Washington, is it's, it's all I can say. Uh, although I suppose it's warm everywhere else, too. It is, but we are in the Northeast already seeing our leaves come in, so mm -hmm. it's not going to be warm much longer. <laughs> yeah, ours, ours are falling, but it's only because they've been, they've been fried to death by... Uh, uh, the sun and it's just it's been a very odd year as far as weather is concerned um, mm -hmm. well so tell me uh what other exciting things are happening in in washington actually um congress is uh on their their six-week uh, uh back home recess they're, they're technically in session but nothing's much is going on as far as congress is concerned um although uh, there have been calls um as far as uh, weapons legislation, but that's that clearly is not going to go anywhere um, since Trump started backing off of this the other day. Um, what we are seeing is people kind of getting ready um, for when they come back in September. Um, the The Senate has a, the biggest uh, agenda. The uh, debt the debt ceiling and the budget numbers actually have been have been agreed to now, uh, but none of the Senate committees have actually. Uh, begun discussing the appropriations uh, bills, uh, not only the, the dollar amounts, but the uh, language that, that's to follow. The Senate decided not to do anything um, until Trump um, had spoken as to what it was that he would be willing to accept. The House on the other side um, actually has uh, finished with all 12 of its appropriation bills. And so they'll be, they'll be waiting for the Senate um, when they come back on September 6th, I think is, is, is the date. Um, although the budget caps and the uh, and the uh, gross numbers, as far as the, the annual budgets um, are concerned, have been established and and decreased the options or the, the likelihood of a uh, of another government shutdown, um, it's it's still possible. And I mean, what we've seen in the last couple of weeks is that you know President Trump has is, is, is become I guess more Trumpian. I don't know exactly how to describe that um, oh. than he has in the past and. Um, it's clear that he's loaded for bear, so to speak. That, I mean, he's not happy with the world not paying attention to him, whether it's about buying green land or um, mm -hmm. talking about what, you know, why is it that there, are, uh, that guns shouldn't be uh, somehow regulated. So I think that, I mean, one of the things that he's, he's going to be looking at opportunities to kind of restake his claim um, of authority. And it, it may come out in the appropriation bills, including um, and maybe perhaps most especially energy and environment. Um, he, the, the release of the, uh, of the Affordable Clean Energy final rule um, has now been greeted by uh, at least three, three legal challenges that I know of at the moment that probably, each probably um, has somewhere in the neighborhood of 35 plaintiffs um, charging that the, the, that the ACE is, is just uh, is unsatisfactory, that it, it ignores the science um, and that it, it just misses as far as what the federal government's obligation is to, to actually protect its citizens from, from greenhouse gas emissions. Um, something else that's on the, on the line that is also going to trigger him is the uh, uh, auto uh, fuel efficiency uh, uh, regulation and what's triggering him in this case, and evidently he's he's just hopping mad about this, is that California and four uh, auto companies, I think it was Toyota, Volkswagen, uh, maybe GM, uh, uh, 
I'm not sure of the of the fourth one, but they've already agreed to actually put into force the um, the standards that were agreed to under the Obama administration. Um, and what he's feeling is that they're just that they're they're actually slighting him um, and the administration. And evidently, he's going to take this out on somebody. And this is a case where he can. I mean, there's um, Congress isn't really involved in this. The, the, the executive branch is, but if there are things that come up in the appropriation bills um, that look to support that kind of independent uh, action, especially in cases where the states want, uh, the states and industry want to see um, fairly rigorous uh, regulations put into place, he's just not going to sit still for that. So I think what, what we're going to see over the, the next 18 months or so that's left in his first term is we're going we're to see a, a president who is beginning to um, believe that he's being offended, he's being disrespected, and he's going he's gonna to do what he can to, to reestablish that. I think what happens in these cases is that he's going to get more extreme and um, in the end ultimately lose the support um, of probably 10 to 20 percent of his actual core supporters. Um, as far as the environment's concerned, that's a good thing. Um, but I think there's just going to be both sides are going to be digging in um, for the next 16 months, and we're not going to see anything particularly meaningful, um, but we will see a lot of legal cases. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing that's occurring, too, is, you know, there's there's an increased uh, dialogue going on um, on the Democratic side as far as the presidential contenders are concerned, um, as far as climate uh, change and what they would do about it um, if they were elected. Uh, the emergency that he declared uh, over the immigration um, in an effort to be able to get the funds he wants he wants to build the wall um, is actually triggering a, a, a dialogue that's going on on the Democratic side that says, well, maybe we, you know, maybe if a president, if a Democratic president comes into office, that that's one way that um, the nation can begin to focus on uh, the climate problem uh, is by having that that president. Uh, declare a national emergency. Uh, I find it interesting that there are Republicans um, who are opposed to the national emergency on immigration uh, uh, that are saying, well, I mean, what will the president do next? Declare a national emergency over climate? Um, and although they don't mean it quite quite the way the Democrats do, um, right. the fact is that it's, it's out there. And, you know, there'll be two, uh, the, the Democratic National Committee still hasn't uh, sanctioned uh, a, uh, a a presidential debate um, on climate change, but what has happened is that uh, CNN and MSNBC uh, are both going to be holding what essentially are town meetings on the subject. Um, the first one I think comes up September fourth, um, which is CNN, and they're using the same rules that the the Democrats are using for the next debate, so that um, only those candidates that have met threshold requirements. Um, I think the requirements are 130,000 separate contributors. Um, and another one of the requirements is that they, they score at least 2% um, in four separate presidential preference polls. Um, there are about 10 of the candidates now that are uh, able to meet those requirements. Uh, one of them, however, that's not going to be able to meet the requirement um, or seems not to, is Jay Inslee, Governor Inslee from Washington, um, whose entire platform uh, and, and reason to run for the presidency is climate change. Uh, where he falls down, I believe, is that he doesn't score 
highly enough in the in the uh, opinion surveys uh, to be able to meet that particular requirement. That may change over the next, well, I guess, what another 10, 15 days at the most. Um, but at the at, as of this moment, um, we're looking at maybe 10 of the uh, presidential candidates uh, being on the stage at that on the CNN uh, town hall. Well, that would be unfortunate if he can't step up because, you know, I mean, things do change quickly in politics, so we can still hold out some hope, see, you know, how, because if anything, he would push the conversation in ways that maybe moderates are not willing to do. And I think that's really important. Uh, I do, too. And, and I mean, one of the things that Inslee has um, going for him that the others don't is the fact is that I mean, he, he is probably the single um, most experienced elected official in the United States um, on the issue of climate change. I mean, he's, right. uh, he's, his state is, is, um, has attempted on two different occasions to pass uh, carbon tax. Um, he has been able to, to change budgets and things. And I think that the, the stature that he would have in that kind of a conversation um, would be important, as you say. It would it would it would move the conversation along, and and by virtue of his experience, he can take the high ground on things. Um, somehow, I'm sure that you know that'll be his thoughts will be dealt with. But um, as a matter of outside organizations, for example, the Sunrise Movement has actually pretty much endorsed his his approach, uh, his a very extensive plan. Um, and so they'll be hearing, the Democrats will be hearing about this um, from a whole host of, of sources outside of the candidates themselves. Yeah. Well, it seems like uh, lately the conversation about this idea of a climate emergency is starting to grow really quickly. And we talked at the end of our last season, the first season, about these declarations of climate emergencies we saw uh, Canada put one out and the UK has made its declaration and then Sydney, Australia just recently made one and Austin, Texas recently made one and then I just saw today Fort Collins in Colorado, its city council passed a declaration for a climate emergency like last night or something like that so you know, it's it's picking up pace really quickly and you know there's this this conversation going on around it where we see that it's becoming something that people are getting behind, but then there's also the question of it seeming like, you know, all talk to somebody. Uh, okay. So we're making, making a declaration of a climate emergency. W what does that mean? Uh, what we really need is action. Uh, we saw in July, uh, Bernie Sanders and Ocasio-Cortez introduced a climate emergency resolution and it's gone to the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee. And even if it goes no further than that committee, it represents what that step towards a national climate emergency in the U.S. could look like. And it sets the parameters in no uncertain terms. So if you read it, it, you know, it just points out in bullet points you know, what it means to uh, say we're in an emergency. But it does not, of course, say anything about what are we going to do with it. Um, but the power of a resolution, I mean, in my mind, is that the, the declaration of emergency forces the government or a community to admit to the problem. And then once that problem is acknowledged, 
they have the grounds to take action to resolve it. And if they don't take action, more importantly, then there's a certain amount of culpability of being inactive in the wake of acknowledging that problem. So the community that's behind those elected officials can say, you know, we, we're going to make a vote of no confidence in you because you said one thing and we're not seeing any, any forceful movement behind it. Uh, I, I think that's right. And, and, and uh, I, I think that's right. I mean, it, it, it's certainly a messaging um, tool that, that uh, could very well become very important in, as, as we go forward the next few months. Uh, language actually seems to be something that's coming into the dialogue. Um, I mean, there are actually now conversations going on uh, as to how do you reference climate change um, in, in news columns or in reporting or in um, organizing? Do you, do you declare it a crisis? Do you just mm -hmm. talk about um, global warming as, you know, as, a, as a phenomenon? Um, how, in fact, do you kind of begin to describe this? And, and some of the conversations are, I mean, they're interesting in the sense that some people are saying, well, the crisis shouldn't, the word crisis shouldn't be used because what's going to happen is that it's basically going to bum people out. I mean, if, right. if, we're, if we're in a crisis situation, then it's already too late to do anything about it. And I, right. and I think that, that part of the dialogue, again, that's going on now, and I, I see this as a very positive thing, is how, in fact, do you begin to describe the situations in a way that people understand the seriousness but, but um, are not so overwhelmed um, mm -hmm. with the circumstance that they just don't see any way to deal with this. Um, I noticed in a couple of articles that I read this week uh, that certain radio stations and TV stations are actually putting out um, memos to their staff saying, you know, you can use the crisis under these circumstances. You use climate change and a uh, different set of circumstances. And, and, and that focus, again, I think is going to translate, is going to translate well. But as you said, you know, what do these things mean legally? And that's something that is yet to be determined in most cases, in all cases, I think that whether it's Austin or, or Australia or here in the United States, that these are non-binding statements. I mean, what they are, are they're statements of a situation um, and they kind of provide uh, an overview of the problem and begin to set a context within which solutions can be discussed. And, and again, I think that's it's extremely important. And, it, and it, it's important from the beginning of the dialogue rather than um, having to hear from people that have been in the trenches, so to speak, and say, you know, my God, don't you understand what I'm saying? It, it, it chases people away, I mean, that kind of extremism. So mm -hmm. I think that, that mm -hmm. the, the, the emergency context and getting people motivated and expanding the conversation is really good. Uh, in the case of the United States, the, the case that actually will decide whether or not uh, a Democratic president, or for that matter, if a different Republican that actually believes that climate change has occurred, gets elected and then becomes willing to, to uh, do some kind of executive uh, uh, declaration uh, of an emergency. The, the issue is not actually, has never actually been decided in this country. The, in most cases, emergency declarations, at least since the 1976 Emergency Act uh, was written, most declarations of emergency have to do with freezing property of um, foreign operatives, if you will, 
in 2009, Obama had written, uh, it declared an emergency for swine flu, but there were no specifics in that. And the case that is now going to go to the Supreme Court sometime uh, in the next number of months, I don't think the timing on this actually has been, has really been nailed down. But the question is, does President Trump have the authority to declare an emergency, uh, a national emergency over the immigration issue, and then go forward and begin to reprogram appropriated funds that weren't appropriated for the purpose of building a wall. Now, mm -hmm. if the Supreme Court says that, well, this is within the presidential power, then you're going to see future presidents begin to use the emergency declaration in ways that may or may not have been anticipated. Again, there, there, are, there are a lot of opinions on this. And basically, when a national emergency is declared um, in the United States by the president, it usually becomes, it's, it's attached to one of 135 actually different laws um, that in fact have within their um, four corners statements of uh, emergency authorities, emergency actions, emergency powers. Now, it's very scattered. And certainly there's none that actually talks about um, climate change as such. There are, there's, there's, there are several, for example, that, that indicate that the president can um, deal with transportation issues under certain circumstances. And, and it's actually no more specific than that. So, I mean, would Trump move to do something about you know, changing traffic patterns or something, or, or, or a, a Democratic president use that wording to say, okay, well, from now on, it's all electric vehicles, or to indicate that um, the fuel efficiency standards need to be knocked up by another uh, 10 miles per, uh, or t uh, another 10 miles per gallon sort of thing. Um, I think that everybody's kind of feeling their way through this. Ultimately, what's needed is what's always been needed, and that's to have a Congress and a president um, on this, you know, at the same point in the dialogue, all, you know, all believing that this, in fact, I mean, is a crisis or an emergency or however you want to phrase it. It's a situation that needs to be attended to and it needs to be attended to quickly. And until that happens, um, I think what these alternatives get us closer, but they're not, they're never going to get us on target because ultimately what's needed is legislation, specific legislation that acknowledges the problem, which is, as you stated, um, mm -hmm. and then references what some steps that need to be taken to deal with it. And, and in such a way that we're not caught up in the courts again for the next 10, 12 years, or um, because they, they give a mission without adequate finances uh, to carry that through. I mean, it's one thing to say that, you know, federal government and the states shall work together to do X, Y, and Z, um, but then not provide the, the funds needed by the states to be able to carry out those mandates, or in the case of the federal government, it carrying out those mandates. So I think what we're, what we're seeing now is, is a constructive jumble, if you will, of uh, activists, um, of everyday citizens have been actually saying, look, we need to do something about this and searching for ways to get that message forward into the minds of their elected officials. And certainly, there's no time like the present to begin doing this. And I think that uh, the, the more people that weigh into this, whether they do it by asking their representatives to, to declare emergency 
um, or to pass a certain piece of legislation, um, it's all good. Yeah, and I, I think that any, anybody who wants to make those messages needs to have a carefully constructed pairing of you know, the, the idea that they support this concept of the, clim of the climate emergency, but also they want a solution and this is the solution they're behind so right. that, you know, here's, here's what I'm concerned about. Here's something you can do about it. And that way it's not just this message out there saying, Oh my God, there's an emergency. My hair is on fire and I don't yeah. know what to do about it. Exactly. I mean, this is, I mean, it's, it can't be the, you know, the, the, the chicken little, the sky's just falling and yes. so let, let's duck under something we don't want to duck under anything anymore. We want to, we want to aggressively step forward at this. And I think that if those messages get out often enough, that something is going to shake um, our elected leaders, maybe to step above themselves and put partisan politics to the side. At least that's, mm -hmm. that's the hoped for uh, outcome. And we'll never know unless we do it. Right. Well, I do also want to uh, sidestep just for a moment and talk about the most recent article that you have put on civilnotion.com about plastics. Um, you want to just give a quick overview of what your concept was there? Yeah, actually, it was one of those things that, you know, often when I write, I have a pretty good idea of what it is that I'm going to write and where I'm going to end up on a particular piece. And, yep. and this was something, I read an article that caught my attention that, that indicated that the, the real driving force behind the growth in fossil fuels these days is not um, is not what we think it is. It's it's mm -hmm. in the making of petrochemicals. Right. Um, and as I started looking into it more and more, um, there are situations now where the administration uh, is actually. I mean, Trump is pushing this. He he did a uh, uh, an event in Pennsylvania last week um, at a plant that's uh, being constructed by Shell. Uh, it's called a cracker plant. Mm -hmm. um, it's next to the Marcellus and the Utica uh, uh, gas fields uh, where they're fracking. And, and the whole concept of this is that Shell wants to use um, the ethylene, the stuff that they usually burn off, um, as a resource to, to build, to, to create uh, plastics. And, and, and everything from what, you know, drinking straws to um, wrappings on, uh, you know, packages in the, uh, in the supermarket. Um, and, and this is a huge, this is a huge, huge thing, um, huge thing, a huge thing. And, and what it ties into are, are two things. One is that fossil fuel sources are being used for this, um, which means that there's going to be a lot of investment, billions of dollars, trillions of dollars, actually. I mean, the, the shell plant itself um, is costing $6 billion. Um, at the moment, it is employing 6,000 construction workers. Mm. Um, it's ultimately going to have 600 permanent employees, and it's very consistent with the administration's efforts to turn Appalachia into a natural gas hub. Mm. Um, you know, obviously, this is—I mean, coal is not coming back in these districts. So I think that 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 what we're seeing here is um, our industries in the oil and gas fields who are looking for new ways to create income. We're looking at an administration that is very positive on fossil fuels, can't save coal, but they sure can save natural gas. And they keep pushing for this, doing infrastructure projects. Um, and we're going to be committed to making products that are bad 
ultimately for the environment. I mean, natural mm -hmm. gas is better than coal. And I suppose plastic straws are better than something else. I don't know what, actually. And, and, <laughs> oh, I don't know either. <laughs> but, yeah, right. But I mean, it has to have some purpose. And oddly enough, um, I mean, this has been done a couple of, uh, in the UK, for example, they've outlawed, I believe, um, plastic straws. And now consumers are complaining because they don't think the paper straws work well enough. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're going to kind of get these kind of conflicts going. I, I was amazed, actually, at, at where, the, where this article took me. And I was, I was yeah. very pleased that it did. Uh, I'm going to follow it up because the other thing that it's associated with is what do you do with the trash? <laughs> Yeah. Um, and I mean, the, one of the statistics that came up for in, in doing the research on this article is that pl enough plastics are dumped into the ocean, um, each day that equals, um, all the plastic, uh, refuse of New York city, uh, on a given day being dumped in. So, I mean, we're, right. we're talking about billions and trillions of tons yeah. of this stuff. Um, and now the country, I mean, China had been a, a, a very important actor in recycling. I mean, not only the United States, but the UK and other nations were sending their plastic refuse to China for recycling. They won't mm -hmm. take it now. Um, so now, again, what we're having is we're creating a situation that is creating a demand for fossil fuels that we know creates global warming. Um, and we're, we're crapping up the environment with a material that nobody wants to take anymore to recycle. So, yeah. so what do we do about this? And, and again, I think this is an aspect when we talk about climate change and we talk about sustainable environments, we have to yeah. talk about more power sector. Yes, exactly. And that's one of the things I think that has been important in our conversations for this podcast is getting beyond the energy conversation, because I feel like Everybody has a really good idea on that. But then you come around to discussions of the plastics life cycle, everything from getting it produced to what do we do with it on the back end? And, you know, does it do any good to incinerate it? Well, no, it doesn't, because then that sends particles into the air. And, you know, they, there's a whole life cycle conversation that has to be had about plastics and what we're going to do and, 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 and how quickly we can get there. Uh, that, that's exactly right. I mean, one of, one of the things that, I mean, I was kind of horrified by, if you want to know the truth, was um, the, the Guardian is actually, had, had run a series of articles on, um, on trash um, mm -hmm. a couple of months ago. And one of the things that it mentioned was that um, black plastic, you know, the, like you yeah. get in the, the, the meat trays that you would buy and, sure. you know, in the super, it can't be recycled. Yeah, I know. Uh, well, well, they don't take yeah. it at my recycle place. Well, I mean, here they, in Virginia, they took it, but they didn't tell you that they couldn't do anything with it. I mean, so, right. so why separate it is one of the questions. Yeah. And now what's happening in Virginia is um, we just got notices and, uh, on that the um, glass will no longer be recycled in, uh, in Virginia. And right. I thought of all of them, I mean, all the materials, right. my oh, guess my would glass. have been glass. Right. I mean, it's sand, right? Silica. Yeah. Um, but now that's happening. I think one of the things that, that needs to be added to the conversation, not just generally about trash, but what does it mean to recycle? And what it is, what is it? It can't be recycled. And maybe we start by limiting um, options only to the kinds of materials that can be recycled. And yeah. so this is this is a conversation that that needs to needs to take place, and it needs to be attached to 
the the uh, transportation and um, uh, electric uh, sector, uh, and it all needs to be discussed together because if what happens if you don't, then the pieces aren't going to fit when it's all when all is said and done, and and you know all the efforts on one hand are going to be offset by what you didn't do on the other. Yeah, exactly. I I think that's a valuable point. And uh, all right, well let me so that. That article is at civilnotion.com right now, so people can go there and dig in a little more. I mean, it, it has a really strong focus on uh, you know, Trump's approach, so I think that people should read that. Um, but I'm going to come back around now to what we were talking about for the climate emergency, and I just want our listeners to know that Zero Net 50 now offers a place where they can take a climate emergency pledge. And this is at a personal level. This is at, you know, the individual level, promising to reduce emissions through a variety of actions, and then also committing to contacting government leaders to demand that they declare a climate emergency for towns, cities, states, and the country. Uh, the pledge page also has um, a series of letters that you know can be used as a template, but I think it's important to remember to pair those letters with concrete actions that can be taken by government officials. So go there, take the pledge, and uh, that can we can also uh, access that through civilnotion.com. <clears throat> so that's all I have. Uh, many thanks to our listeners for joining us today, and of course, thank you, Joel, for your thank quick you, update Jennifer. today. Yes. And everybody, have a great day.